0: wonderful dialogue. I feel like a sermon is superfluous that was so rich and alive and helped me. So thank you, Casey and Tony. But I want to ask you all, can you think of a time when you've been really thirsty? I mean, really thirsty. I can think of lots of times, but I've never had to go that long without water. I'm lucky enough to say I think. I mean, I remember a time when Mitch and I were backpacking in Colorado (laughs) and we got a little lost on a hike and we did run out of water, but even then we knew that it was going to be okay and we found our way back to our campsite and we only had to go a few hours. It wasn't that big of a deal, but I did have the experience just recently, last year, of being around people that were very thirsty. Last summer, I was up in Berkeley at school, and some of my classmates and I were invited to a Ramadan dinner. It was called an iftar meal, and it's a meal that Muslims who observe Ramadan celebrate together every night at sundown to break their fast. And I remember saying to my classmates, oh, I guess I'll go. I mean, I have so much homework, but I mean, we were invited. I'll go. (laughs) So I went. And my friend's The fasting that I experienced, that I watched, that I heard about, makes what we do in Lent pale in comparison. And it's not a competition, I know, but it really was eye-opening for me. Um, The thing I didn't know, and maybe some of you know this, is that um, in Ramadan, Muslims not only fast from food, they fast from water. I didn't know that they went from sunrise to sundown without a drop of anything to drink for a whole month. I didn't know that. And I was sitting at the table with some new friends that I had made, some Christian seminarians and some Muslims in the community. And they were sharing with me that they had gone on a hike that day. And it was really hot. It was early June, but uncharacteristically hot. And they'd gone on a hike. And they weren't complaining. They were just letting me know what they had done that day. And I saw these two pitchers of water on the table with empty glasses. And I thought, God, they must be so thirsty, even though they were just acting normal. And... um, Finally, the sky darkened outside. It was 9 p.m. because Ramadan happens during the longest days of the year. And um, there was a beautiful, haunting call to prayer. And then it was time to finally break the fast. And traditionally, it's done by starting with water. And so I tried not to stare. But I was so taken aback by how the people at my table drank this water with such pleasure and need as if they had been waiting for this moment their entire life. And then I shyly watched the host of our table take a bite of a date. There was a little bowl of dates on the table, and he took a bite of a date. And I don't really like dates. But the way he took a bite of this sweet and chewy date made me want to try dates again. And it made me want to try fasting. It was as if it were the best thing he had ever tasted. And the people at the table told me that part of the reason they fast during Ramadan is to increase their thirst. They said that it brings them closer to God, it heightens their awareness of the fragility of life. And it deepened their gratitude around the basics of life. And even though they get up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning every day for this pre-dawn breakfast, and even though they go all day long without food or a drop of water, for many, it was their favorite time of year. And they talked about inviting friends and neighbors over to their houses at night and breaking the fast together in this celebratory, pleasure-filled, relief meal of community. It was so beautiful. The poet Rumi belongs to the mystical arm of Islam. He's a Sufi, and here's one of his poems. Don't seek the water, increase your thirst, so water may gush forth from above and below. Until the tender-throated babe is born, how should the milk for it flow from the mother's breast? Water, thirst, these themes saturate scripture And in today's stories, we have some very thirsty people, one of whom is Jesus. So here he is. He's tired. It's hot. He's thirsty. He's sitting on the ground, leaning against a well, hanging out. And the thing about this well is that it's in Samaria. Now, we know that Jesus is traveling on his way from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. And Samaria is smack in the middle. The road goes right through. But um, if you were a Jewish traveler, you would never go through Samaria. You would go around, always, um, because Jews and Samaritans had been mortal enemies for six centuries. As one historian puts it, like Irish Protestants and Catholics, only cultures of a common ancestry can develop a depth of hatred that can last over a huge span of time. Hmm. So in Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, he decides to go right through Samaria, of course, And he stops at this well to rest and sends his disciples into town to get food. And I wonder why he didn't go into town with his disciples. Why did Jesus choose to stay by himself at this well with the sun high in the sky and the sun and the heat beating down on him? Now, this isn't just any well, as you heard in the reading. It is Jacob's well, a well that goes way back to that patriarch in the Old Testament so this well has some history. And the interesting thing about wells in the Old Testament is that they were often places where a man and a woman met who would later get married. In fact, this is the very well where Jacob met Rachel and where Isaac met Rebecca. Wells were often places of wooing in the Old Testament. They were also places of divine encounter. You might remember Hagar who had been outcast by Sarah and Abraham and she sat by a similar well And God met her there in her hopelessness, and she named the well, the well of the living one who sees me. So it seems that the writer of this gospel, the gospel according to John, was setting up something special to happen by starting the story with Jesus sitting by a well, a well in Samaria. And along comes a woman to draw water from this well, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink of water. And with this one sentence, Jesus is crashing through barriers of religious and social rules. First of all, it was totally inappropriate for a man and a woman to be talking alone by a well. Secondly, Jesus is a Jew, and he's addressing a Samaritan woman. It was not done. And thirdly, this isn't just any Samaritan woman. There is probably a reason why she's coming out to draw water at noon, the hottest time of the day. Normally, women would come out to draw water early in the morning or later in the evening when it was cool. So we have a cue here that she's coming out at a time of day when no one else would be there. She's some kind of outcast, and she is thirsty, probably thirsty on more levels than one. And that's where Jesus starts the conversation, which is the longest dialogue in the whole New Testament. He starts the conversation with thirst, Give me a drink of water, he boldly says to the woman. And a back and forth follows that you heard about living water, and the woman keeps taking him literally, because she thinks the living water is spring-fed water at the bottom of the well. But she says, well, give me this water so I can stop returning here, over and over again. And wells have symbolism in other traditions, too. In Celtic spirituality, wells are the places that connect us to Mother Earth. They're places that connect the surface of things to the depths. And it's at this point in the conversation that Jesus takes it to the deeper level. Go call your husband and come back. And when she says that she doesn't have a husband, Jesus proceeds to tell her that... He tells her her entire marital history, in which we learn that she has had five husbands, and the man she is currently living with is not her husband. Now, this section could be the subject of a whole other sermon, (laughs) suffice it to say... She isn't some kind of loose woman, as has sometimes been interpreted over the years, kind of like Mary Magdalene. In fact, it's possible that she is barren, because women couldn't divorce husbands. The husbands had to be the ones to leave or to die. And this has happened to her five times. And Jesus sees right through her, and he names her most intimate truth, her deepest shame, and her source of isolation. He looks at her and he says, I know you. But she keeps going, okay, so tell me where the right place to worship is. Because Samaritans and Jews argued about where the right place to worship God was. It was one of the fundamental arguments that they had. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you worship or who you are or what you've done. What matters is that you come before God as your whole self in spirit and in truth. Well, this one must have touched a vein, but grasping for words, maybe hiding from the bold and intimate statement Jesus has just made, she stammers, well, I know that the Messiah is coming one day, and when he comes, he'll explain all of this. And Jesus looks at her and he says, I am. I am he. Which is very unusual. Jesus hardly ever makes these self-revelatory statements, but he does to her here. And there must have been something about the way he said that because she drops her water jug. She doesn't need it anymore. And she runs to the city and she tells everyone, come and see, I just met someone who knows me. He told me everything I have ever done. I think he might be the Messiah. And like so many characters in the Bible who encounter Jesus, they come away needing to tell everyone they meet, I am whole. I have been healed. I know who I am. It's okay to be me. Jesus strips away all of her labels and all of the societal rules that separate her from everyone else. And he sets her free. And he gives her a new identity here as a witness to her community. She becomes the first person in the gospel to preach that Jesus is the Messiah, a Samaritan woman with a bad reputation. Which would seem to suggest, as author Sarah Miles says, that salvation does not depend on getting things right. It depends on thirst. So where do you find yourself going to quench your thirst? Are there wells in your life that you keep returning to over and over again to draw water from? They don't really do the trick. Where are the places that you go to draw water that you'd rather others not know about? In this story, Jesus is waiting there. He's waiting for her by the well, and he is thirsty too. The poet Rumi writes, Not only the thirsty seek the water, the water as well seeks the thirsty. A few chapters later in John, Jesus calls out to the crowds, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. So where does this leave us? Thirsty? Wanting some of that living water? Well, there's definitely some of it right here. But I have a feeling that it might be out there too, in wells and watering holes, across boundaries, and even in enemy territory, where we can somehow encounter a thirsty Jesus there. In the Orthodox Church, this woman is considered on par with the Apostles, and they give her a name, Fotina, Saint Fotina. She was thirsty, and she encountered God in the place where she least expected. Don't seek the water. Increase your thirst and see what happens. Amen.